Father, we um, recognize that what we've just heard is, is true, and it's sturdy, and it's worthy of our attention. In fact, these words here are the most true thing we will ever encounter in our lives. They are um, the most important thing that we can find in the universe. It's your, it's your word to us. It's your communication to us. And it's, it, it saves. And so we pray that you would uh, renew us as we consider this your word. And again, we ask for your spirit to be in our midst. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was watching Zorro with one of my boys this past weekend. And in the scene, this is like one of the older versions. Um, in the scene... Zora somehow finds himself in a little confession booth, and one of the the female characters confessing her her sins, and at the end, this is what Zora says to her, you've done nothing wrong. Your only sin, your only sin has been to deny what your heart truly feels. (laughs) There's nothing surprising about that. That's par for the course for Hollywood, right? Your only sin is to deny what your heart truly feels. That's culture, kind of, it's what the culture communicates. You know, follow your heart. Now, what we saw last week is that that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the heart is, above all things, deceitful. It's confusing. It lies to us. It should not be listened to very, very closely. Um, And we saw that last week. We saw the insufficiency of the human heart last week. That's what we considered and you might remember uh, the high priests, for example, charged with protecting the people. What were they doing last week? They were looking out for themselves. They were acting out of self-preservation. They want to get rid of Jesus because he's causing a stir, a ruckus, that might get the attention of Rome and might compromise their position of power within the community. They're worried about that. And we also saw last week Peter's zeal, Peter out. Remember swashbuckling Peter? At the arrest, bearing, pulling a dagger out and willing to take on an army for his Lord. And then moments later, the passage we looked at last week, Peter is denying any attachment to Jesus whatsoever. He denies. And, and, and it was, all of it was a reminder of how our hearts go wrong. And this week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this question of the human heart and consider how the heart goes wrong, goes wrong, the ways in which the heart goes wrong, as we consider this passage of Scripture. Now, we're in the midst of Jesus' passion, and that word passion comes from the Latin word, which means suffering. These are the sufferings of Jesus. We've considered uh, the arrest, his trial before the high priest, and now we're considering his interactions with Pilate. And it's early in the morning. It's early Friday morning. And Pilate knows that something is up because, most likely, because his troops were involved in the arrest of Jesus. Um, He knows that something's cooking. If he's a good governor, there's some, there's, there's, there's a little bit of turmoil happening within the community, within Jerusalem. So he gets up early, likely, and the Jews approach him. Look at, look at verse um, 29. Pilate says, what accusations do you bring against this man? And the Jews who are bringing Jesus to Pilate say, in verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Now, it's interesting what they say here. Like, we, we delivered him because he's guilty, right? He, he's in our custody, therefore he's guilty, right? He's, he's guilty until he's proven innocent. It's kind of their approach to the matter. Not good legal practice, but it's what, it's what they're doing. This whole thing has sort of been rigged. It's, they're, they're forcing the outcome on this, and, and you see it even there. And so Pilate asks, um, begins to question Jesus. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the question that the Jewish leaders have been interested in is blasphemy. That's been their big charge. But Pilate has a different, he doesn't care about blasphemy. He's got, he's a politician. He's got a different, he's a political concern. And that is, are you a, are you a king of these people? And then Jesus goes on to question Pilate, and he questions him almost as if Pilate is on trial. Look at verse 34. Jesus, Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? This is a Jewish thing. I, I don't know what you guys are doing, what you Jews are up to. They were brought to me, so you need to answer some of these questions if we're going to get anywhere, is what Pilate is saying. And Jesus explains, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now you remember, John's gospel uh, I mentioned at some point that each of the Gospels from the early church had, had been identified with one of the four creatures in Ezekiel. Um, the ox, the human, the lion, and the eagle. The, the, the king of each sphere, right? The, the, the skies. The eagle's the king of the sky. And John's Gospel was identified with the eagle. And it was, it's fitting because Jesus in John's Gospel soars. He's like an eagle. He has this heavenly perspective. He's the manna come down from heaven. Whereas the other gospels begin with a baby in a manger, John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, was God. And it's, it's, it's soars, John's gospel. And here we see that. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom. And so Pilate hears kingdom and his, 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 Concerns are peaked. Look at verse 37. Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Right? You said kingdom, so you must be a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. That's the purpose of Jesus. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, I am the eagle that has landed. I am the one from heaven, and I've come down. And my purpose is to break open a whole new reality within this old dying world. The world walks in darkness, and it submits to the prince of darkness. But I've opened up a kingdom of truth, and I am bearing witness to that truth. That's what Jesus is saying. I am bearing witness to what is real. And then Pilate asks, a fundamental question. Verse 38, what is truth? What's truth? 
What's truth? That's the big question. Leslie Newbegin says the prisoner, Jesus, is speaking a language which is not the language of politics. Right? Not the language of Pilate. He's not concerned with truth. He's concerned with power. That's his truth, power. So Pilate, with this whole discussion of truth, he's kind of a duck out of water. And I would venture to say we're all ducks out of water when it comes to truth. The way I understand Pilate to be responding to this claim of Jesus, what's truth, it's sort of like, huh? Like, what's truth? Like, um, just dumbfounded, confused. And I think that's our response as well. Listen again to what Leslie Newbegin says. Contrary to what the Enlightenment says, we are not honest inquirers seeking truth, but we're actually alienated from the truth. We are by nature idolaters, constructing images of truth shaped by our own desires. This was demonstrated once and for all when truth became incarnate And our response was to seek to destroy it. Truth is standing before Pilate. He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. And he's actually going to be responsible for for its, its death. And so Pilate goes out. He goes out from his, his quarters out to the, to the crowd. And, and in this step, this final section of the, of the passage this morning, we get a close up, uh, to the dynamics of the human heart, how the heart has gone wrong. The heart is a little island in a sea of lies. And actually, the the human heart actually perpetuates the lies. It's a little lie factory that perpetuates that sea, making it bigger and broader and more vast. That's what the human heart is. Because all of us have kind of Pilate's question, don't we? What's truth? What's truth? Well, what we're going to see here is that the crowds and Pilate represent kind of where the heart goes in its deception. It can go to fear, that's where Pilate goes, or it can go to anger and pride and self-righteousness. That's where the crowds go. Two kind of directions the heart goes in its its state. Towards anger and self-righteousness, that's the crowds, and towards fear, that's Pilate's response. So first, let's look at the fear of the human heart. Now, that's, that's Pilate's response. P- P- uh, Pilate questions Jesus, and then he concludes. Look at verse 38. Look at his conclusion of his inquiry. Verse 38. After um, he had said this, he went, he went back outside to the Jews. Pilate goes back outside to the Jews, and he tells the Jews, I find no guilt in him at all. It's emphatic. I find no guilt whatsoever in this man. So what does the heart, the truthful heart do in that? Here's an innocent man standing before us. I find no guilt in him. He lets him go, right? That's what justice does. That's what a truth seeker does. They stand up for what's right. But that's not what he does. Because, again, new begin, because Pilate is not of the truth. He can't face the hatred of the world, which the truth always rouses. He can't face it. So Pilate is is trapped in this lie, and so he cannot act justly, but fearfully. That's what he did. He acts fearfully. He's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, my, my job is to govern this place. Things are tense. The Jews are riled. 
And it's all about this guy. I got to keep this. I got superiors I got to answer to. And I got to keep things calm. I can't have a riot. Can't have a war. Another like Maccabean revolt. We can't have one of those. He's well, well, well aware of the history. We can't have another rebellion. So I've got to kind of massage this thing a bit. And so what does he do? He thinks to himself, maybe there's a way out. Maybe there's a way out of this. He says, you have, they, these Jews have a custom. Look at verse 39. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So here, let me give you an option. Do you want the king of the Jews? It's kind of surprising that he says king of the Jews. Why? I mean, is he trying to sort of, is he being sarcastic? Is he antagonizing the crowd, like recognizing the, the kingship? It's not clear. Do you want the king of the Jews? And they cried out, they cried out again, not this man. We want Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We get all that we can tell about Barabbas is that he is not, a, a, he's a murderer. We learn in the other gospels. He's a, he's a robber. He's an insurrectionist. He's a violent, he's a man of violence, a robber and a murderer. So Pilate sees nothing wrong with Christ and yet he still gives them an option. He tries to appease their bloodthirstiness as it relates to Jesus by giving them an option. And the problem for Pilate is that he's not operating out of truth. He's operating out of political, political expediency. But even more at a more base level, he's operating out of fear. He's operating out of fear. Now, the crowds, on the other hand are operating. So fear is one way that we go, that our hearts tend to go. Another direction in which our hearts can go is through, toward self-righteousness and anger that flows out of such self-righteousness. I mean, the, and that's the crowds. The crowds are angry and self-righteous. They have been given, the, the, the Jewish people have been given the oracles of God. They have, God has revealed to them Throughout history, he sent his prophets to speak to them. They, they have the scriptures, the word of God. And now God is standing before them. And they're saying, he must be put to death. We hate God. We don't want him. In fact, we would rather have a murderer and thief in our midst than God. We would rather have a man who destroys life, takes life, and steals than the one who spent three years of his ministry pouring himself out, giving his life, healing others, feeding the hungry. We opt for that Barabbas over the Christ, Jesus. Truth, light, life. You want that in your society? In your people? Living amongst your people? Or do you want a murderer and a thief? Murder and thief. Barabbas. Enthusiastic. Enthusiastically, we want Barabbas. Now, and this is what the scriptures say. This, Paul says uh, that, we are, that when we were enemies of God, Christ came to us. We're, we are fundamentally opposed to God is what the scriptures teach. That's, that's the biggest lie that the heart believes, is that God is an, is an enemy, is what the scriptures say. And this is, this is just, it's, it's so clear from this passage right here, that that's, that's, that's our heart condition, apart from the Spirit. It's important that we don't remove ourselves too much 
from, from all of the characters in this story, from Peter, the high priest, Pilate, the crowds. Our hearts work out of lies. They live out of lies. And the Bible makes a pretty incredible claim uh, that, uh, well, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says that, that no one does good, not even one. No one does good. Now, that's a strong claim. Nobody does good? How is that possible? I've seen many uh, non-believers do good things. Well, Jonathan Edwards does a good job of explaining this, the, the, the um, New England Puritan. And he, he talks about, he, he calls it common virtue, virtue that is common to all. When, when, when ordinary people do good things, it's called common virtue. And he says it stems from fear or pride. All of common virtue stems from fear or self-righteous pride. It stems from the very things that's driving all of this activity on the ground. Fear, pride. Think, think of it this way. If, if you see um, a person with a broken down car, and you think to yourself, should I help? And then you see all the other cars at the track. They're kind of looking at you. You're, that, you're closest. Are you going to do anything to help? And you think, ooh, I don't want to look like a jerk in this moment. I'll get out and help the person. And fear is driving that good deed. Or pride can also drive it. You, you, broken down car, you're sitting there, you're looking at all the other people, just kind of looking the other way, trying to ignore the broken down car. And you're thinking, I'm going to be the good person here. I'm going to be the good Samaritan. I'm going to do what's right, better than all these other people that are just ignoring the situation. And so you go and help. You see how fear and pride are driving that, that good action? Now, don't get me wrong, the world would be a, a much worse place if we weren't doing good things out of bad motivations like that. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. That kind of morality, what does it do? It reinforces the self-centeredness of the human heart, doesn't it? If fear and pride are kind of how we're getting along in life, and if our morality operates out of that, we're actually strengthening this, the fundamental self-centeredness of the human heart by our good works. Tim Keller does a, has does, done a great job of explaining all of this, and he, he says, you know, when, when you see a per, like an elder in the church or a deacon in the church or, you know, an upstanding person within the church, all of a sudden they're kind and they're generous with their time and they do good. And all of a sudden you realize they cheated on their taxes or they cheated on their spouse and everyone's shocked. Well, it may be that all of their good was being driven by the fundamental selfishness of the human heart. They were doing it out of pride to look better than others, or they were doing it out of fear, worried about how they might be perceived if they don't do good things. And so all of a sudden, a little blip on the radar of their moral life shows up, but it's, and it looks different, but it's actually fully consistent with what their morality has taught them to do, to act out of their own self-interest. See, here's, what, here's the problem with that. When the stakes are raised and the temperature heats up, the person that, that, that cheats on the spouse or te- cheats on their taxes or whatever it is that otherwise is a good person, the temperature heats up in that moment. They're, they're, they're not thinking clearly, but, but they're operating on selfishness of the human heart. In this situation, the temperature is heated up. 
And all of these people, maybe good people, they may have been the people waving palm branches a week ago. We, I, we don't know, but they're saying, we want Jesus. We want him dead. They're operating out of this, this pride and anger. And Pilate is buckling under the pressure. And he's operating out, out of fear. And this is what we do. This is us. Truth stands before us and our, our, our minds and our hearts can't comprehend it. We sort of have Pilate's response like, what's truth? I don't. Mino comprende. Truth. Veritas. I don't get it. I, I don't understand truth. That's our response. So what is truth? Let's come back to Pilate's question here. What is truth? The people are operating out of anger. Pilate is operating out of fear. And all of it is being aimed and directed towards the truth standing before them. What is truth? That's where I want us to kind of bring uh, this to a close. The truth is this. Are you ready? The truth is God is love. God is love. That is the overarching governing fact over all the chaos on the ground. God is love. And he's at work even here. This scene, which just looks out of control, total mess. God is at work. And we see it even in this passage. But look at verse 30. The Jews answered Pilate, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, the, the literal uh, verb there is hand him over to you. And that verb keeps showing up over the course of this passion. Hand over. It's, it's the verb that kind of organizes the whole passion. It's the, it's the verb that pushes the story forward. Hand him over. Hand him over. Judas hands Jesus over to the Jews. The Jews hand Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers. And the soldiers hand Jesus over to the cross. And Christ, on the cross, hands his spirit over to death. Hand over, hand over, hand over. And one of the commentators, Bruner, says this. The good news behind all of these little earthly handovers, behind everything that's happening on the ground, is that the greatest handover of all, reigning over and working through all the other handovers, is Jesus handing himself over for the world in his obedience to the love of the Father who sent, or we might say, handed over his Son for the salvation of it for the salvation of the whole world. Here's the truth. The love of God is governing this whole mess and working it out for God's good salvific purposes. But I want us to kind of zero in even a little bit more deeply. Why, why are the Jews on this, on this, what truth is? Why are the Jews even bringing this up before Pilate and Rome? They're involved, the, the, the Rome's and Pilate's involvement, and clearly Pilate doesn't even want to be involved. His, he, look, look what he says, he, look at verse 31. Pilate says, like, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really want anything to do with this. And they say, what is their response to Pilate? It's not lawful, lawful for us to put anyone to death. We want blood. And the only way we can rightfully get it is if you execute Rome. It's your prerogative to execute by crucifixion. And John tells us 
providing a little added commentary, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He said it many times in this gospel, the son of man must be lifted up. He told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness and the people were saved, so the son of man must be lifted up. Why does he have to be lifted up? Why does he have to be exalted? The, 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 the Jewish leaders were ready to, they picked up stones already. They were ready to pummel him into the ground to kill him by stoning. But that's not, that's not the death for Christ. His death is his exaltation. His death is his lifting up, his being hoisted up, suspended over the air, above the crowds as king. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ will hang on a tree in a matter of hours. And he, now, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Is he hanging on the tree because he's cursed of God? Well, in this moment, but his cursing is actually our curse. He took our curse so we could get his blessing. So we could get his life. And this is the truth of the world. What's truth? Here it is. God is love. And it is the foundation upon which this universe actually has been built. All of life is a gift. And even here, amidst the chaos of fallen humanity, the roars of the crowds, and in Pilate, the power of the world acting fearfully, not acting justly, the crowds acting angrily, in the midst of all of it, love triumphs. What looks like the worst day in human history is actually the greatest day. Our only hope in this world is what happens on this day. Now, the question that we should reckon with is, What about the fear and pride that grips our own hearts? Now, if we're honest, we recognize that the Spirit's at work in our life. If you're a Christian, you have arrived at that belief because of the Spirit working in your heart. That was something that was revealed to you by something beyond your own heart and mind. It was the the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. And the Spirit is producing good works. But we've got to admit, sometimes we do good things, we do the right thing, for the wrong reasons. We do it to prop up our own selves and to look special before a bunch of people, or we do it because we feel pressure. We don't want to look like mean or or like a jerk. And so out of fear, we do the right thing. And so what, what this gospel of Christ does is it provides a unique solvent for all of our good deeds done for the wrong reasons, right? For the prideful... The gospel says, look at him, hanging on that tree, pouring his blood out, gasping for air in God-forsaken darkness. That's your sin. Put him there, right? No basis for pride. Your sin, put him there. And for the fearful, we say, look at him, pouring his blood out, gasping for air in God-forsaken darkness. His love for you brought him there. His care for you. And as Paul says, if God gave us his one and only son, how much more will he give us all things? And all things are ours in Christ. 
You see how, you see how the gospel works on, on, on the fear on the one hand and the pride that dwells within our hearts? It speaks uniquely to both conditions of fear and pride. And so what we do as a church, kind of like what we're all about, is gospel ministry. It's the slow, steady application of gospel truths to our hearts to uproot the fear and the pride that drives the human heart. That's what we're doing every week is we're, we're soaking. We're trying to marinate our souls in the truths of the gospel so that our hearts actually get transformed. And they will be transformed because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Romans 1, 16 and 17. So the, the, the question we'll close with, or at least an answer to the question that, that Pilate asks, the question that kind of we're all asking in, in a sense is, what's truth? Pilate's question, what's truth? Here's truth. God is love and demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, powerful reminder of our waywardness that we are, as was mentioned earlier, prone to wonder, as we sang, prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. Um, So we ask that you would root us all more deeply in the love of Christ. Root us all in not just a vague, mushy, kind of Valentine's Day sense of love, but, but the love of Christ is concrete. It is a particular work on a particular day. It is Christ crucified. And so root us in that particular work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.